0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Our Father, we thank you for your Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come to be among your people, and we can... Uh, lift our voices in praise of the one who created us and the one who redeemed us and, Father, the one who gives us a hope and a future, and inheritance. And so, Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with uh, joy this morning as we worship you, as we uh, come to the table and feast on the body and blood of your Son by faith. I pray that uh, you would build us up and Lord, we, we ask as we think about um, uh, abortion now during the Sunday school lesson that you would uh, help us to be uh, circumspect and that we would be um, sober. And Father, that you would, uh, you would help us, that we would uh, lead our nation in repentance, that your church would turn from our own sins. And, uh, and show uh, the world what it means to love life and to fear you. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to, uh, having the opportunity for uh, this just a one-off lesson here, I wanted to take up the abortion in the church document that you should have received an email about uh, via Flocknote with a PDF and a link to the statement that our presbytery put together. And uh, so just to start, praise God for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's, it's somewhat mind-boggling. I just did not think that we would see that uh, so soon. I, I figured we wouldn't see the overturning Uh, in my generation maybe even the next but here we are it's been overturned which is not is not a full affirmation of the the inalienable right to life but it is at least to remove a a codification at the federal level and allow the states to um, argue about it and come to their own conclusions and regulate it as they see fit. And so it's, it's a step certainly in the right direction uh, for the nation, it's a mercy of God. It has led to the closing of, uh, to the banning of abortion in many states. Um, they're saying as many as, uh, almost half of the states could have some sort of ban of abortion in place, uh, certain exceptions allowing. And so that's remarkable, I mean, Uh, Two months ago, that was impossible to do. It was just impossible. You could not regulate past first trimester. And now you can do um, as your legislators have the courage to do. And that's not always to ban it, but um, it is to limit it. And so in the state of South Carolina, that immediately put into effect the, well, not immediately, once the stay was removed, it immediately put into effect the heartbeat bill, which outlaws abortion at about six weeks. Uh, Once you can detect a heartbeat, then the baby cannot be killed. And so uh, it's not enough. It's certainly not enough. And so we, um, there's work to be done in our state, but I want to go. I want to um, want to look just at a little bit of this statement. You can pull it up on your phones if you want. Um, it's at abortion.evangelpresbyterian.com, or you don't need to. You can just uh, f- listen. I'm going to read portions of this, but here's the background to uh, this statement. One of the churches in Evangel Presbytery, Sovereign King Church, where Joseph Spurgeon. Is the pastor? Uh, yes, he is distantly related to Charles Spurgeon, I believe. And uh, his, his uh, elder board sent up an overture to Evangel Presbytery, and it more or less was um, asking the presbytery to make to to make our position on on the sin of abortion clear. And so that overture was then farmed out to what's called an ad interim committee. And ad interim just means in the intermission. So between meetings, an ad interim committee gets together and works on the statement. And so we determined early on, at first we were just going to revise their very brief statement that fit on one page. which would have just been like bullet points about um, what we believe and what Scripture teaches on the sin of abortion, the sin of killing babies in the womb. and that, But then as we started thinking about it, uh, there, was, there was no way to say what needed to be said so briefly. And so uh, this was October, I believe, of last year. Roe versus Wade being overturned was nowhere on our radar screen. I mean, the leak hadn't been leaked. I mean, no one anticipated this. And so we started working on this um, by God's providence uh, late last year. And uh, it became clear that um, to say what needed to be said, particularly to the church. Notice that the title of the document is abortion and the church not abortion in the state, it's not abortion in the magistrate, although we do address those things, right? This is a statement for the church. This is a statement for believers. This is a statement to pull the uh, log out of the church's eye. Right? And so um, judgment begins with the household of God. And so that was our take, is we've got repenting to do ourselves before we start working on uh, the righteousness of, a, uh, of our laws or of our magistrates or of our society. And so keep that in mind. The title is important, Abortion and the Church. And so um, we got together, the committee met, the full committee met probably six or seven times between October and June, we debated certain issues, uh, you know, and we weren't all on the same page on some of these things. We debated back and forth, came to consensus. Even if we hadn't come to consensus, the the committee would have continued to do its work and had a majority and a minority report if we wanted to. Um, but we all came to consensus, and so it was good iron sharpening iron work. And then there was a subcommittee from that committee that did most of 98 nine percent of the writing. okay. and so um, and then two men did 90 percent of that writing, which would be Tim Bailey and Josh Congrove. Tim uh, Tim Bailey just retired uh, from or resigned his call up at Trinity Reformed and has moved on to other work. And uh, Josh Congrove is an elder at Trinity Reformed and just a, a a brain. I mean, just he's a. He has a PhD in classics. He edits a mathematics journal for Indiana University. He wrote a book on Augustine. I mean, it, so it, he's, and and uh, and so he he just did so much work on this. And he's the sort of guy that doesn't, didn't allow things to fall through the crack. You know, we debated in committee whether we should refer to, the, to uh, babies in the womb as preborn or unborn. And so he's the guy who has to go through the document and figure out which one we should use. And he's the sort of guy, you ask him to do that once, and he just does it. He works through it. He takes up his work, and he gets it done. And so, you know, praise God for, for that sort of work. And, uh, and for his being like an ox and just plowing forward. And so uh, it became clear about May when the leak of the Dobbs ruling came out that we had the opportunity to publish about simultaneously with the actual opinion that came from the, the Supreme Court that we could publish this simultaneously. And so we... Well, the subcommittee kicked it into high gear, and went uh, I mean just revisions and changing things around and and um and we got it so that it was published the day after the Dobbs ruling came down and uh, praise God for that, praise God for the timing <clears throat> everybody's thinking about this, the landscape has changed, and so Uh, Everybody can be engaged locally in this fight. Uh, Things that happen federally seem distant and unapproachable, right? I mean, we can't go to Washington, D.C. It's hard to get in touch with congressmen and senators of the United States, and yet it's very easy to get in touch with our local representatives. They put their mobile phone numbers on, on the webpage, and you can call them and they'll answer. And so we have immediate access, and you can text them, and you can interact with them. And so we have immediate access to those who can actually, in this geographic area, which is the state of South Carolina, ban abortion. And so it's just become much more, uh, much more local, much more accessible, much more manageable. And I think that's the greatest effect of, the, of Roe ver- being overturned. There are arguments that are being made today about what the 14th Amendment allows. And um, both progressives and conservatives are pointing to the 14th Amendment for their post-Roe strategy. Um, The conservatives say that the the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which is the equal protection uh, clause, right, for persons that uh, you cannot um, the do exercise, and, and um, I'm blanking on the language, but equal protection of the law, right, laws apply to all persons, okay. And so the, the conservatives are saying, okay, that, that applies to pre-born babies, let's codify that, right, let's just make it explicit, even though it's already there, right, let's make it explicit. And the progressives are, are saying that, that um, oh, whatever they've done with the 14th Amendment up to this point, <laughs> which is really hard to explain. And, and uh, but they point to it as, as the reason why, um, why a woman should be allowed to do with her own body what she wants to do. Okay, so the 14th Amendment will b- become a big uh, deal. There have been some some legislative attempts to put in a constitutional amendment that would guarantee the right to life, and um, I don't know where those things are in process. But nonetheless, um, I think our focus needfully needs to shift to local, state, law. And that's great. It's so helpful. So, um, so that's the that's the landscape of what's going on here. Now, the the first part of the abortion in the church document makes a very compelling case about the twentieth century. Right, the twentieth century. The twentieth century. Continuing on into the 21st century is just soaked in blood. Right? And the first sentence after the preface, so of chapter one, is When the record of our time is written, it will be a record of bloodshed on a scale previously unimaginable across the history of mankind. The heart of that bloodshed is the war carried out by the born against the unborn. The victims of this war are a class of persons constrained within the womb of their mothers, and they live without sight, sound, or voice. The disability that unites them is their incapacity to lift a finger in their own defense. You think about that. It is the, the, the most... There's no way for the preborn to mount a defense. There's no way for them to advocate for equal protection. There's no way for them to advocate for uh, their their own um, personhood. Right? They are unseen and unheard and have no voice. And that's been the debate that has been going on in our country since before the time of Roe v. Wade. You know that in the year prior to Roe v. Wade, 500,000 some babies were aborted. It's not like Roe v. Wade turned, turned on abortion in this country. It was there already, right? And, and yet Roe just... Um, Roe was just a federal smackdown on the states, not allowing them to do uh, any regulating. And um, Casey, the case that came up in the '80s, uh, the same sort of uh, support of the Roe premise. But um, the the so that's chapter one, right where it begins. But then. Uh, what's what stood out to me is uh, the section called a grim progression. And the argument of the uh, the argument of the paper is that bloodshed begets bloodshed okay And one kind of bloodshed that may be in some sense justifiable degenerates into bloodshed that is just... Terrible, heinous, against any sort of um, just theory of war. And then it goes beyond that to uh, oppression. And so, let me just read you uh, a part of this. The 20th century, what would become history's bloodiest century. And after you read this, that's undeniable. began began with war between many nations. The warfare scale, tactics, and techniques were unprecedented. World War I's trench warfare was so dehumanizing and the killing so sustained that many declared their optimism this horror would force a sea change in government's ability to send their men into war. Thus, H.G. Wells named World War I the war to end all wars. He was wrong. World War II followed hard on the heels of World War I so that during the first half of the century, fatalities from these two world wars reached 77 million. But cloaked within this number was a detail foreshadowing the trajectory uh, massive killing would take as the century continued. Okay, and then the next argument that's made is one of the terrible atrocities of World War I and World War particularly World War II, was the killing of what? Civilians. Yes, the Jews, there is that systemic oppression there. But the killing of civilians, that, that had always been um, understood to be against just war principles. You did not kill civilians. But in World War II, that was completely thrown out. Now, you may be thinking that that's a reference to um, to the, uh, the nu- nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan. But, boy, that's not the only killing of civilians that happened in World War II, okay? Um, the bombing of Dresden, the bombing of Tokyo, where they dropped tens of thousands of ordnance on Tokyo, um, that bombing of Tokyo killed more, almost as many civilians as the nuclear bombs did, just slightly less, right? And so, I mean, it's, it's uh, and, and of course we know that the, the Nazis bombed London and England and they were, they were uh, not too concerned about civilians either. But the allies weren't too concerned about civilians either. Okay? And that's what must be remembered. That's our blood guilt. Okay? That's our blood guilt. Some don't want to accept that because they think that it militates against nationalism and patriotism. And here we are celebrating July 4th and I'm talking about the atrocities we've committed as, as a nation. But you can, you can put your head in the sand and ignore history and you will be worse off for it. So it goes through that, um, the uh, allied forces attacks on Japan March 9 and 10, 1945, the raid called Meeting House sent 300 bombers to drop 1,665 tons of bombs on Tokyo, leaving close to 16 square miles destroyed and 100,000 dead. United States forces later dropped. welcome. Dropping right into the middle of an intense Sunday school. Um, United States forces later dropped nuclear warheads on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing 105,000 men, women, and children. So look at that, 100,000 just with normal bombs and 105 with uh, nukes. Anyway, then the next stage of the, the blood guilt was rulers killing their, their own citizens. Okay, and where do we see that? Well, we see that in Um, Stalin's Soviet Union right Uh, we see that with Chairman Mao in China and uh, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge and and his regime right although on a smaller scale it was more of a percentage of the population of his own nation that was killed but um, Stalin was responsible for the deaths of 60 million uh, we, we approximate that Chairman Mao was, uh, was responsible for the death of 40 to 100 million people in his, of his own people, and then 2 million in um, Cambodia with Pol Pot. And so the first World War I and Two killed 77 million, then communism killed at least 100 million souls, and uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote, documenting Stalin's death toll in Soviet Union, thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience evil doing on a scale calculated in the millions. This cannot be denied, nor passed over, nor suppressed, he wrote. Okay, so first soldiers killed soldiers, then soldiers killed civilians, then rulers killed their own people. Prophet Hosea warned that bloodshed begets bloodshed. And then... It concludes with parents killing their own children. That bloodshed begetting further bloodshed and more heinous bloodshed. Right as it goes down, you can only, you can justify uh, that there is just warfare. Right, um, whether World War One and Two justify it, um, I, I, I'm not going to go into that. Um, but. Uh, Certainly, um, trying to stop the systemic killing of a race of people seems uh, uh, perfectly just, Um, and yet the methods that we used in that process um, some were unjust. So anyway, then parents killing parents, I mean parents killing children, and you just think that that. Loss of life, you would think, would lead to sobriety and a change of directions. But blood guilt begets blood guilt, right? The deeper you get in, the, the less life means to you, right? And so, um, so something that... Uh, how, does, how does God talk about children being sacrificed to Moloch in the book of Jeremiah? you remember what it says there? What does it say? It's it enter his mind. Okay, it's so, it's so heinous that in some sense the omnipotent found it inconceivable. The omniscient found it inconceivable that his people would give themselves to that sort of killing. Okay, and so this is like, this is a huge leap forward. Um, the, first, the first sentence, and this is where this gets spicy. The first sentence under parents killing children in this document is, domestic slaughter began with birth control. The first abortions were not surgical, but chemical, and hormonal. Before women became willing to pay for their child to be cut out of their wombs, they began using birth control methods that had an fashion agency. As we will discuss in greater detail later, these methods include inner uterine devices, IUDs, and the pill. Okay? Now, this is, this is where it's intense. It's, it's intense, right? Um, so they lay out this, this, this killing, and then, um, looking outward, and then it's like the whole document shifts to the church and says, okay, church. How have we been complicit? Which is, which is good, because we could sit here and we could just cast stones at pagans and say, you're unrighteous. And that would be stupid, right? Um, that would be pointless. Uh, it's like uh, accusing the blind of for being blind. Right? And so... Um, the point of the document is for us to lead in repentance, hoping that if God grants to us repentance, the repentance will be a demonstration of God's righteousness to the world. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? And so that's, that's the hope here. And so the whole, the, the, the thing that stands out in the second half is... Um, the killing that comes along with the pill board of fashion birth control IVF right in vitro fertilization techniques right and fetal cell lines as well and and here's the trouble those three things i just mentioned are ubiquitous in the church Okay. Um, and and why why have we been hoodwinked? Well, back in the fifties, uh, our our doctors decided that, and and the abortionists and the eugenics uh, folks decided that they would redefine pregnancy as starting at implantation rather than fertilization. Okay. And so you don't create a human being until that fertilized egg implants. But that's four or five days. That can be four or five days after fertilization, after conception. And so that that was um, that was a bold-faced lie that was put in place in order to protect abortive fashion. Methods of birth control from being seen as immoral, right? We were it, it was a they they hoodwinked the world with that. Okay, and now we go back and we say no 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 no. Um, geneticists, biologists, scientists all say that life begins at conception. Pagan geneticists say that, right? Not just Christians. Why? Because when you have a zygote, guess what? You have a completely different set of genetics from the parent. You have the combination of the mother and the father, and that is, at that zygote, which is a fertilized egg, has all the genetic information it will have for the rest of its life, right? Right? And so that is the moment of the creation by God of a person. And and yet if if you go read the literature, if you go read, and this is the crazy thing about this document is so much research went into it. Research from Ph.D. biochemists, right, that knew their stuff. And so they dug into this. And when it comes to birth control, um, if you dig into the pharmaceutical companies' literature, they admit that one of the agencies of birth control is to prevent implantation, it it immobilizes sperm as well, it also is to prevent, prevent conception. But sometimes there are breakthrough conception Right? If you're using the pill, there's a breakthrough conception, and then the child is not allowed to adhere to its mo- the walls of its mother's uterus to go on living, and it's killed there, okay? So you conceive a child and then end up killing it um, at implantation. That is murder. It's hard to accept. We just don't feel for something we've never seen. It's not like a puppy. I mean, if they were killing puppies, it's just immediately a terrible thing, right? Because they're so cute. They're so fluffy. They're happy. But you don't see this two, three, four, five, six-day-old human being whose mom made her womb hostile toward her child. We just don't see it. And so it's out of mind. It's not a big deal. And we have a thousand good reasons why we can't, uh, as husband and wife, uh, get pregnant. There's a thousand reasons, right? Got to finish college. Right? Can't afford it. Got to get to know one another. Right? I mean, just on and on and on and on, um, the, the excuses. And... Um, in conservative Reformed church churches, how many premarital counseling sessions, did pastors go to their, the, the couple being married and say, "You know what? the pill's off the table. Do you know it's a board of fashion?" I don't think a lot of pastors do that. I, I know some who do, right? And so, and that should be said, okay. And so, um, this document goes through the science. It goes through what that means. Um, that there is a small percentage, a very small percentage, of breakthrough uh, pregnancy when you're using abortive fashion hormonal birth control. Um, uh, notice I refer to it as birth control and not a contraceptive. Contraceptive would stop conception. And that's not what these do in every case, okay? And so uh, it is birth control, right? No matter the means. But there's a small percentage that comes through, and we get down into statistics, and statistics, man, I don't have the brain for stats. But these guys who do have the brain for stats went through that. And, um, even give this this the probability of if a woman is on birth control. In the course of how many years she will have have had a breakthrough pregnancy and um, and not allowed a conceived child to rest and grow in her womb. Okay, it's not a huge number, but it is there. It's like between uh, one in. 30 to 1 in 70 years. But it's there. Okay? And then you get into in vitro fertilization. Okay, which in vitro fertilization is the hope of um, bringing reproductive technology to um, people who can't naturally conceive, right? And people who are not... Um, biologically created to couple together and have children if you get my drift. Right? And in vitro fertilization uh, is a process by which you in in a lab in a petri dish you fertilize a certain number of eggs dozen, sixteen, something like that then those Those eggs are then, those fertilized eggs, those zygotes are then implanted in the mother's womb and some take and some don't. But what do they do with the ones that aren't being used? Um, A famous biologist called them, they put them in concentration cans, right? They freeze them in liquid nitrogen and they stay there until they're going to be used or until they degrade to the point where they can't be used, right? And so, again, in the hundreds of millions, there are that many children frozen right now. And you, you may be thinking, children, come on, it's a fertilized egg. And I get it, that's hard to conceive of. No pun intended. I get it that that's hard, but that's where you need to stir up your thoughts. That's where you need to stir up your heart right, to think through this. And so IVF, there's just been wreckage, hundreds of millions of lives lost or in suspended animation against their will as persons who have an inalienable right to life. Okay? And then fetal cell lines, okay? Fetal cell lines are used in scientific study And uh, they have strange names like Merck-5 and Heck-293. And um, these immortalized cell lines are used in the testing of vaccines, in the testing of Coca-Cola, in the testing of makeup, in the making of Tylenol. I mean, every... what, what HEC-293 especially offers is, a, is it's been used so much that it's become the standard for testing certain materials, and you have to use it because there's so much data, right, to compare it with other, other things. And so you wouldn't believe, I mean, everyone here is taking medication that's been developed with HEC-293, okay? You're complicit. We live in a tainted culture. We're going to be smeared by it, okay? There's no way not to be smeared by these techniques. And so people who come along, let me just inject this. People who come along and say, I'm not going to take the COVID-19 vaccine because it was developed by, you know, Heck 293 and it was tested on uh, these fetal cell lines. Well, the minute they take a Tylenol, they're a hypocrite or an ibuprofen or they get a bag of chips from Frito-Lay, or they have a Dr. Pepper. Flavor testing is all done with these fetal cell lines. So it's ubiquitous, but that's the fruit of a culture of death, right? That, that, that doesn't care that those HEC 293 and Merck 9 started by an aborted baby donating its genetic material. And whether that aborted baby was uh, aborted um, spontaneously, right? a miscarriage, some of them may have been that way, but in other cases it wasn't a miscarriage. it was a It was an abortion um, because the parents met certain criteria. they were looking for genetic material, okay? And so. So, again, remember that progression, war, civilians, right, rulers against their own people, and then parents against children, and then that, all of that technology that comes from abortion just being this wicked web we've weaved that we can't extract ourselves from without um, wholesale repentance. And, and that's where the last section of the paper comes in and says, "What do we do? What? How could we possibly change the situation?" And one, it's repentance. Two, it's the it's God's mercy. Three, it's pounding the drum as we did with surgical abortion in Roe versus Wade right, just continuing to pound that drum, the fruit of evangelicals waking up and opposing surgical abortion was this Dobbs ruling. I mean, that's good fruit. That's good fruit. But then, beyond that, it's embracing fruitfulness. It's an embrace of life. It's putting forward the glory of femininity, right, as opposed to the, the feminist bloodlust, right, it, it is... It is putting forward something positive and saying, yes, yes, life. Life is, um, Jesus Christ is the life, right? And so we are all committed to life. And that gets, that gets down to the very corners of life, which is cell lines and laboratories, right? It gets down um, into uh, things that... Um, Things that we have very seldom thought about. And so that's where it goes in the last section, is it puts forward a positive. And so we as Christians, you know, and, and I, I don't have time to go into it. Maybe I will at some point. It's, um, uh, I'll just say briefly that there are times when I believe conception is legitimate to be used, but it cannot be a board of in its mechanism. Barrier methods, right, are not fashioned, okay? But, but even to say that, it's like, okay, good, I don't have to have babies. That's not the attitude we should have. The attitude should be like, okay, God gave me a spouse, and one of the purposes of marriage is to be fruitful, and so, wow, God's going to use me to build his kingdom. God's going to use me to populate the earth. God's going to use me to take dominion over the nations, Wow. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? It's really good stuff. It's wonderful. And, um, and so we, we are so influenced by the pragmatism, by the, the self-centeredness, by the um, best life now sort of attitude of paganism that we've just adopted it. We soak it in by osmosis in this culture. Right, you watch TikTok; they're selling you worldviews. Right, that's what they're doing. They'll they'll make sure that you're stupefied and you think that being entertained is the is what your life is meant to be. But God has different orders for His church and His people. God has orders of take dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply was His first command to man. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. All right? Fill the earth. The earth is not yet full, no matter what climate alarmists and population control freaks say. Okay? We do need to figure out our supply lines, but... Um. And so, that's where I'll end. Um, that's a basic overview of this document. I hope it stirs you up to, to read every word because it's not just, it's not very, it's not clinical, it's actually eloquent. The writing is really, really good. We're gonna publish this as a book. And so, um, but don't wait till the book comes out. The book's, book will be slightly different probably from this version, which is more a statement for the church. And so um, we hope to do that work and get it out uh, soon and read it abortion.evangelpresbytery.com. That's where you'll find it abortion.evangelpresbytery.com. Uh, I'll take one quick question. Anyone with a question? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Ordained strength. Yep. Yeah, that speaks. Church doesn't know that anymore. Church, the, the the church includes. And sure. Also, and also with it becoming a local issue, that's a good thing, but um in households, now it becomes even more personal. Oh, yeah. And like I think it's Michael said, mother against daughter, daughter, father against father. Everybody needs to be on their knees more than ever. They yes. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it does create that strife because because uh, we can be involved and people will see us involved and and on both sides. And so the strife will come into our own households. Speaking of what you can do, um, this Thursday there's a hearing at the state house on a bill that would f- essentially ban abortion. Um, no exceptions, but it it does not regulate contraceptives or IVF. I mean, that's a that discussion needs to come with a lot of education. Okay, so they're sort of carving those out, but it it doesn't have rape and incest exceptions. It does have life for language of the mother or for life of the mother, and so. Um, but but the bill you can you can find that bill online. It's S 1373, and. Um, but there's a hearing in the house on that bill on thursday i may go up there and try and testify and uh but it'd be good i'm i'm sure that the screeching feminists will be there and so it'd be good to um i mean they will be screeching i mean i'm not i'm not exaggerating and then um the evangel presbytery has called for a day of fasting and prayer this wednesday and I'll announce that during the this, this service, but um, this Wednesday, fasting and prayer. If you can't fast from food, fast from your cell phone. Just fast from something that gives you more time to devote to prayer, right? It, some some can't do food, and I totally get that. Um, but fast from something that's difficult, but also frees up a bunch of time, and uh, gets your mind focused on what you're doing, and then spend some concerted effort and prayer usually how I do fast is I begin after dinner the night before and go to dinner the next day it's easier on the body than going from night all through the day 24 hours to the next day so I usually go after dinner I cut it off go 24 hours and eat the next night it works for me so um, and hydrate if you're going to fast for the first time, make sure you drink a lot of uh, juice or water. So anyway, we got to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Thank you for your kindness to us in this, and we pray that it would wake us up to engage in loving our neighbors in the womb. Lord, I pray that you would uh, reveal to us our sins, our complicity that we would be humble, teachable, that we would repent. And Father, that you would be glorified in all this work. Lord, be with us as we worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.